Human decency is not derived from religion, it precedes it. The religion of one age is the literary entertainment of the next. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Exceptional claims demand exceptional evidence. Welcome to the podcast of Leaders in Free Thought. This is where Seth and I get together and discuss issues of importance to atheists, skeptics, free thinkers, and others who base their lives around reason. We bring you news, interviews, and thoughtful discussion on topics of importance to people in the free thought community. I'm Seth. And I'm Jeff, and you're listening to the Leaders in Free Thought. If you spend any time around skeptics, you've probably taken a look at the Skeptics Annotated Bible. I know it's the only Bible I spend much time looking at. And uh, we got a chance to talk to the creator of the Skeptics Annotated Bible, Steve Wells. Clap if you know the Skeptics Annotated Bible. All right. Thank you, everyone. I'm telling you, it's a, no, it's it's really it's a, popular it's among a thing. our gotta, ilk. We got to get. <laughs> it's one of the great resources for like Bible contradictions, uh, explanations of of. That's one of the big ones, but explanations of the, maybe the tyranny of God is a good... One of Steve's focuses is on, on the violence of God. And the, well, I mean, it's, the, the thing about it is it's not, it's not like a deceptively edited Bible. I mean, it is the Bible, you know, and it's just, just kind of... The verses are just kind of categorized. Well, and one of the things we talked to him about was that there are points in that in the Skeptic Standard Bible where he says, here's a good passage. This is a good thing. It's not really contradicted anywhere. Like, hey, look at this. He really is pretty fair with it. He comes yeah. at it from like a logician standpoint, uh, which was very cool. But he does, there is a focus in at least some ways on God's violence. He, he has a great book out called Drunk with Blood, in which he, in a sense, goes through every one of God's violent acts, God's massacres, God's, God's attacks on people, acts inspired by God, leaving out things like the flood where there's no real numbers, and goes through and calculates out the, the number of deaths attributable to God versus attributable to Satan. And it's really interesting. I'll let Steve tell you a little bit more about it because that is something we got into the end of the interview. But yeah, it was really shocking the uh, when you when you compare the numbers. Like Satan's supposed to be such such an evil, horrible, you know, the destruction <laughs> of humanity kind of dude, and then he com- comparatively he's quite tame. Yeah, apparently uh, apparently Satan's sort of a hippie. He's, <laughs> he loves he's a all pacifist. Things. That was really, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I wanted to point out a couple of technical notes. Um, I wanted to use Audacity. It wasn't agreeing with me at the time, so we had to use Google Voice, uh, which uh, seems decidedly lower quality than Audacity would have been. But, you know, you take what you can get, and I'm certainly glad that Steve was even uh, available for... Exactly. No, Steve doing a phone interview was was very cool of him. He he managed to give us a lot of time that he... He obviously didn't have to. None of our guys have to, but, you know. Yeah, certainly. (laughs) Well, and the guy, the guy, it's funny, he didn't seem to know 
how much cachet he has in the skeptics movement, which I thought was kind of funny. Everyone who I brought up this interview with was like, oh my God, you got the guy from the skeptics annotated Bible. No one knows his name, but yeah, well, it's and the he guy was, from the skeptics annotated Bible. Well, and he was surprised kind of when I emailed him or maybe not surprised is the right word, but he's saying, I'm not much of a talker, but I'm willing to do an interview with you. And I, I thought he did a great job. Really cool yeah. interview. Certainly. Yeah. It was really clear. Talked about some yeah. interesting stuff. And he, he knew his shit too. I mean, he could have, he could he could easily pass himself off as a, uh, you know, like a biblical scholar, oh, like yeah. a like a Bart Ehrman, which which he mentioned. And Bart, if you're listening to this podcast, I'd like to interview <laughs> you at some point. <laughs> That'd be badass. Uh, electronically lift Bar- lick Bart's taint. <laughs> Bart, we love you. <laughs> Anyways, but no, he yeah he was a he was an incredible guest. I had a lot of fun talking to him. Why don't you just first tell us uh, a little bit about the Skeptics Annotated Bible, how you got started doing that project, that kind of good stuff. Well, um, I started, oh, it's been a little more than 20 years ago, and it happened really when I, um, my sister had become a Jehovah's Witness, and I had never read the Bible before, and I decided that in order to try to talk her out of it, I needed to know a little bit more about the Bible. You know, I started just started reading the Bible and started marking it up as I went along, just the things that kind of bothered me, or and I started putting them in different different categories and whatnot. You know, as to cruelties and absurdities and things that contradict science and were insulting to women. You know, the different categories like that. And before I got really through Genesis, I thought, you know, how come nobody's done this before? You know, you go to the to a store and a bookstore or just a regular bookstore and you see hundreds of Bibles, um, all different editions, but you never see anything that's presented from a skeptic's point of view. That ought to be done. I'll, I'll, I'll just I'll just do that. And so that was like, I guess, that was back in about 1990. Did it on index cards, contradictions, and all my little notes and stuff besides the highlighting of the actual Bible. And I had originally intended, and still do really, um, intended it to be in a book form, you know, the regular Bible. I could never really get that worked out, so I kind of let it go for a while. You know, a few years, I kind of got discouraged. It was pretty well done, but I didn't know what to do with it. And then the web came along, and I, I knew right away that, hey, this would, this would work there. In '99, uh, that's when I when I first put it up uh, on the on the web. So, were you raised Christian at all, or have you always been atheist, agnostic, or skeptical in any way? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a strange one. I I was raised in a non-religious family. Uh, my my dad is well; he considers himself an agnostic, and my my mom was uh, oh, sort of a or uh, vaguely Protestant, but not, she didn't really, uh, I'm, I'm not sure what her actual beliefs were. They weren't very strong and still aren't. I wasn't raised in a, you know, we didn't go to church. And by the time I was 11 or 12, I was very skeptical and arguing with anybody with any religious beliefs. Until really um, when I got into college um, or when I graduated from high school around there, uh, my sister was, 
my oldest sister became, this is the same one that became a Jehovah's Witness later on. She became a Catholic. She converted to become a Catholic so when, when she got married. And I uh, ended up going to church with her quite a bit. And eventually I sort of talked myself into sort of believing it. Then I went just crazy. I really wanted to be a Catholic priest, went to the seminary, uh, was a traditionalist Catholic, and wanted to be a priest. It was very gung-ho. Then when I was in the seminary, <laughs> I started arguing with a um, professor about, well, lots of things, but especially like evolution and the idea of hell and, you know, things like that. And eventually I got... I, I I still felt like I believed it, but I didn't feel like I could present it. I mean, I wouldn't be an effective priest if I wasn't convinced of these things myself. So I did, I, I, I was still a Catholic, and I ended up marrying, uh, and we had four kids pretty much right away. Uh, my wife was a Catholic, a traditionalist Catholic. And at the time, I, they were all baptized Catholic. And then um, I finally just, I, mean, I can remember the moment it happened, really. I, we were driving home from a camping trip, and I just said, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to pretend any longer. I, I don't believe this stuff. And from that moment, then we had, you know, it was kind of hard on my, on my wife. <laughs> you know, what, are we gonna, what, what am I going to do with this guy, you know? Uh, we got married as Catholics and raised our kids here. We're raising our kids Catholic, and you know what can happen to our marriage if we're not Catholics, and all that kind of stuff. And so she got out all of her books, you know, like all Catholic book, Catholic theology books she could find, and she was going to convince me, you know, that I was wrong. And that lasted about a week. At the end of the week, she was as atheistic as I was, and has never looked back since. What was your? Uh... Your goal with moving it to the net, just trying to uh, create something for other skeptics to go to, or did you want to uh, to get a conversation started, or what was your uh, what was your push there? I think it was mostly that I wanted people, but especially skeptics, to know what was in the Bible, because well, skeptics and believers, but especially skeptics, because so few people have read it and are familiar with what's in there. I think skeptics tend to be more familiar with it than believers, really. So I, I, I guess I'm not so sure that it's that I, my intention was whether it was directed more at skeptics or, or at believers, because I think once um, a person knows what's actually in there, it becomes almost impossible to believe it. Yeah, really, education is really kind of the enemy of faith a lot of the times. The Bible is just so... You know, there just really isn't a whole lot of stuff you can you can read and say, oh yeah, that makes that makes sense. I I I think that that's that's nice. You know, most of it, is, especially the Old Testament, is just so bizarre and cruel and immoral and obviously so. Yeah, I've noticed that one of one of on your side. I was kind of looking through some message boards and the and the facts and stuff like that, and I noticed that one of the call it criticisms or call it like notations that people are make a lot is that there's like a focus on violence. What do you what do you think of that? What the Christians like to focus on is contradictions. They, that gets them they're they're very interested in that and they, they are very good at refuting them. They I've never seen a contradiction that a believer can't come up with a 
some type of an explanation for. They may not be great, but they're something they can live with. There's just no excuse really for <laughs> for the stuff that you that you have in the Bible. You know, in Deuteronomy where it, it talks about a a woman touching a man's, you know, she's trying to help her come to her the aid of her husband when he's in a fight with someone, and she touches the private parts of the guy she's fighting with, and you have to cut off her hand. Don't know how anybody could say, oh, that's a good rule. Yeah, I, I I'm glad that's in the Bible. And that's just one of more than a thousand things that are similar to that. It just So I, I feel like it's the, I really have more of a moral objection to the Bible than I do anything else. It's very disturbing it's, uh, from, a, from a moral standpoint. I noticed uh, your book, and I'll admit I haven't found a copy of it yet. I, I really should order it, Drunk With Blood. What was uh, your experience in writing that? Like what... What did you pick up from the Bible when you put that together? And then what has been the response to it? How it happened really was uh, on my blog, someone asked the question, uh, how many people had God killed in the Bible? And as I was going through, I've been, as I was, uh, I thought about that a little bit, and I started, I decided, well, you know, it'd be kind of fun just to start at the beginning, you know, like with the flood, and just list all of the different killings in the Bible and try to try to my best to count them up. And in some cases, it's easy to do because the number is given. And in other cases, you, you know, you don't know how many people drowned in the flood, for example. And as I went through that exercise, it was I, it was really I thought interesting because it's it surprised me that there were so many that there were so many killings that that I just hadn't really noticed before. So that was kind of a fun exercise. And some of the, and the stories I think are just are fun. They're they're just crazy. <laughs> they're totally unbelievable. I mean, they make no no sense from just a historical standpoint. So, what was the ballpark figure that you came to regarding all the the deaths? I guess by God's hands. Well, if you just take the the numbers that are actually in the Bible, then you come up with a number of about uh, two and a half million. And if you if you know if you get get some type of a guess, then well. You know, mostly of that the flood kind of dominates that, but you know, depending on how many people you think might have been alive at the time the flood supposedly happened, <laughs> that dominates that. But you end up with maybe 25 million if you if you guess. That's not a small number. That's a healthy number. No, and there's 100 135 different stories there. You know, I mean, different killings in the Bible that I that I, I mean, and some of them are. You know, you could say, well, I don't know if I'd count that, or there's some that I left out that maybe I should have counted. You know, but it's it's close. I, I think I've got it pretty pretty close to the uh, being comprehensive. You know, including all of the all of the killings. If it turned out to be 2.1 million, right, that'd still be pretty absurd. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, I mean, to me, uh, one is not is not acceptable. I mean, if there was a it, Unless there was some, there isn't a single killing that I could think of that you'd say, oh yeah, well that's that's good. That that guy deserved it. They were all being killed for crazy things. It's hard to even give an example. Well, one of the ones that that almost everyone is familiar with is the story in Second Kings where the Elisha is walking along and some kids make fun of his bald head, and uh, so he curses him in the name of the Lord and. Two she bears show up and tear the forty-two little boys to 
pieces. <laughs> yeah, I remember that story. That was pretty. That's pretty ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, that's not that's not unusual. I mean, they they're all they're all pretty much like that. You uh, what what has been the like the the Christian response to both the SAB and the and Drunk with Blood? I haven't really had a lot of response from Christians on Drunk with Blood. I, on the blog, I tried to encourage and, and any Christians that that wanted to to explain, you know, to respond to or even do a guest post that would explain why those killings were justified or good or inspiring or whatever, some reason for that they would be included in the Bible. And I only got one person to do it, and that was actually on that one, the uh, Elisha and the Bears. Uh, but I haven't gotten any others. But I, I would like—I w- I was hoping I would get somebody that would be willing to go through each of the 135 stories that I had on the blog and make a, a counter entry, you know, that would explain why they're justified. I, I think that Christians cannot and will not try to justify any of them that well god did it and that's you know it's god's business who he kills you know he created us all he can give life he can take it away you know i the one of the blog entries i've been thinking about doing lately is the excuses for god's killing and i do hear a lot of those and of course one of the most common is well god kills everybody yeah really that that makes the number a lot higher if you assume he killed everyone yeah Right, but then it also takes away the focus from because we're all we're all kind of used to the idea that we all die and that maybe somehow God it's it's all a part of God's will and you know so it's a much softer type of killing than the than tearing little children up for making fun of a prophet's bald head you know. William Lane Craig uh, recently wrote something about you know the absurdity of you know God's morality if you want to call it that. I, I mean the the one where he's justifying it. Yeah, yeah. Have, have you read that? The one where he says something like, "If if you believe as I do that God's grace is extended to those who die in infancy or in sm- as small children, then the death of these children was actually their salvation." And that's how he kind of justifies that. We really have to feel sorry for the poor soldiers that had to that had to uh, kill the little babies and the and the and the women. And but it's okay for you know everything else is good you know because the babies are going to heaven and. So with the women, and of course the uh, adult males, they were all evil and deserved it, and so I suppose they're going. That's yeah, a perfect heads I win, tails you lose type thing. The uh, the people who aren't innocent deserve it, and the people who are innocent are going to heaven, so it really doesn't matter. Uh, you can kill anyone and you're set up. That's right. They, they just, you just kill them all and let God sort them out. That's... Which, as I understand it, is a very Christian attitude. <laughs> um <laughs> So something else I noticed is you you'd taken the time to to check out the the Quran and the Book of Mormon because you're I mean you've done as much dissection as really any skeptic that I've seen online. What what were your experiences like? What do you think? What do you think the biggest differences are? Do you think? I mean, one of the big things a lot of Christians I know poll is they sort of they sort of claim the righteousness corner on well the Quran has all these horrible rules in it. Did you feel like there was any real tangible difference between the the three or what what was your experience oh yeah they're all each are quite different i'm not sure which is worse you know i i i think that those three books are the worst books that i've ever read and and maybe the worst books in all literature so basically god's an asshole and in all of them yeah (laughs) he's an asshole in all three 
that's pretty clear. The, the differences that I would say is that the Quran is explicit, for for example, about hell. In the Quran, it says that people are the way God is going to. Well, the, for example, the I can pretty well give you a summary of the Quran it, it, with just this this one uh, statement. And for the non-believers or for the unbelievers, God has prepared a painful doom. And that expression, that idea, is repeated. 200 times in the Quran, and it's only 400 pages long. You know, if you don't believe in Allah and Muhammad and the Quran, then you've got this painful doom coming to you. And the, the doom is, is spelled out. Allah is going to burn your skin off of your body, and then after he's done with that, he's going to replace it and burn it again. And he's going to keep doing that forever. You know, that's right in there. You're going to pour uh, hot fluids down your throat, you know, and burn your guts out, and, and you know, he's going to heal that up, and then he'll have you do that again. You could even make an argument for the Bible that against the existence of hell, and some Christians do. You know, hell is not well-defined in, in in the Bible, whereas it is the Quran. Um, so, you've got that. Uh, there are some nasty things in the Quran in terms of, uh, like, the treatment of women, and women, uh, it does say that men should should beat their wives if they don't obey their husbands. And it does say that women are worth about half as much as a man. And so the subjection of women to men is very clear in the Bible, in the Quran, but it also is in the Bible. I don't know which is worse as far as the treatment of women go. What about the Book of Mormon? Where The Book of Mormon is just crazy. It's the, it's the most uh, absurd <laughs> book I've ever read. Uh, the Mark Twain said that if you were to, if you were to take the Book of Mormon and remove and the end that came to passes from it, it would be nothing more than a pamphlet. At almost every verse, well, that's an, that's an exaggeration, but I counted them up. I forget how many. There's thousands of and that came to passes. Six times as many uh, and that came to passes in the Book of Mormon as there is in the Bible. So, it you know, it's so obviously a, a fabrication. Just It was just... It was created, and and in a way, the, the language that was used, it was done that way to make it sound like it was biblical. It sound like the King James Version, and it, he got carried away with his, and it came to passes, and exceedingly this and exceedingly that. It's all, it's just, and the storyline is just, it's crazy. I mean, the basic idea, you probably know about that, but the basic idea is that the American Indians were our descendants of Israelites that came across from Israel in 600 B.C., and that's where they came from. And they misbehaved, so God turned their skin dark and made them into the vicious savages that we know today. It's a racist book, you know, and and it's just obviously untrue from an archaeological standpoint. Aren't the, um, the the really light-skinned, blonde-haired, blue-eyed people are like the... You know the chosen people, and they're considered. I think. I think the exact phrase is delightsome. Yes, they are. They are white and delightsome. <laughs> At least they were. I mean, the good guys are white and delightsome, and the bad guys, the Lamanites, were. Their skin was turned dark, explicitly for the purpose of making them unappealing to, so there wouldn't be any intermarriage between the Nephites and the Lamanites. That's so absurd. Is there one that? Is there one that you found that uh, had the had the hold on 
contradictions or making less sense or being... Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the Bible certainly has the most contradictions, but that's because the <laughs> the other two were written by one person. You know, I mean, you had Muhammad and you had Joseph Smith, and so you have one that you have one book written by two authors. I mean, I know that uh, Muhammad didn't actually write it because he was illiterate, but however that worked out, you had one source for the Quran and you had one source for the Book of Mormon, whereas in the Bible you know you got 66 different books from 40 different authors and all written over a period of a thousand years or so. None of them knew what the other was writing, and so one book contradicts another all over the place. There are a thousand contradictions in the Bible. We only have a 450 or so, but uh, I know of another site that has a thousand and one contradictions in the, in the Bible, and they're you know they're pretty good. If you had to say, like, if you had one book of the Bible that you wanted to say, look, here's a great example of how ridiculous and how absurd this whole thing is, what would it be? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I, I, I would say maybe Judges. I think Judges would probably be the, uh, the book that I would be most embarrassed of if I was a believer. <laughs> because it's just one bizarre, uh, uh, horrible story after another. And the worst character in it is God. I mean, Samson is just a monster, but every, he he actually behaves himself. Well, no, he never behaves himself, but he behaves the most badly whenever the Spirit of God comes upon him. The Spirit of God comes upon him, and he, he gets uh, 300 foxes and ties their tails together and lights them on fire. And he kills, murders 30 men for their clothes. Just for comparison, how many... Um... Can you can you ballpark how many individuals say that Satan killed in in the entirety of the Bible? Oh yeah, ten. But that's uh, ten is not really fair <laughs> to blame those on Satan because God God shares and I would say even has more of a blame for those killings than it's Job's children actually is what is you, you can blame on on Satan, but you know that was a bet between God and Satan and. It doesn't say that Satan did the killing, so... God, well, if you think about that, I've killed zero people, Satan's killed 10, and God's killed 2.5 million. At least, conservatively. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm way more likely to hang out with Satan than I am with God. If Satan actually it, it turns out to be a pretty uh, a pretty reasonable guy in, in the Bible, but he's a, he is a minor character, to be fair, you know. I mean, Satan really doesn't show up much in the Bible, so since God does... A lot, and Satan doesn't. You know, it's not really a fair comparison. But yeah, it, that's what it. All the only ones you could blame was uh, would be Dope's children. Sorry, I'm putting you on the spot a lot with some of these things. But what would be if there was something that you think most Christians don't know about the Bible that they really should, like the thing you want to run into church and scream from the uh, pulpit? What is there any uh, any examples that come to mind? I think it, I, I think it would really be the the overall immorality of the Bible. I mean, and Christians don't follow it. No, no Christians follow it. I don't, I don't know how they live with it, but they certainly don't follow it. They, follow, they do follow the, uh, like a lot of Christians will pay attention to the New Testament and the words of Christ, and, and well, not actually not too many of they don't pay too much attention to that either. But, I mean, at least they can point at that and say that there's some good stuff here. But they totally ignore the, the commands, really, of, of God. You know, to do things like if a woman is not a virgin on the night of her, on her wedding night, 
she's to be stoned to death by the, you know, her father and all the men of the town. <laughs> it's there's there's no uh, no option here. That's exactly it. it's a it's a command. If anyone in your family does not believe correctly, you know, has some religiously incorrect ideas, you're you're killed. There's no option there. I mean, it's a direct command from God to kill your your children and your wife and anybody else really that that believes incorrectly. That's extra special in terms of what would I say morality or uh, or ethics concerns. So something. So you've got highlights up on your page and one of the big ones is homosexuality obviously because it's such a big topic right now what okay so how does the bible address that topic i guess would be my question i mean there's not much in the bible that is specific with regard to homosexuality it's one of the it's in terms just of number um i'd have to check but it's it's in maybe a, a few dozen uh passages at most whereas if you talk about cruelty, just overall cruelty, you know, you're in the maybe 1600 or something. So it's it's relatively a small, small, small number of verses that deal with it. But the one that the, the most important one, the most, the one that is actually, <laughs> I think most Christians will, will not even hardly admit that's there or that wouldn't be read from church would be uh, Leviticus 2013, which is, which says that if a, if a man has sex with a woman in the way, you know, if a man has sex with another man, then you you are to you are to kill him. Well, that seems uh, to be the most reasonable solution to that problem. <laughs> I gotta I gotta say that's that's how I would handle it if I was God. Yeah, well, sure. What else are you gonna do? But that's there's so many things that God that's God's answer for everything. You know, if you have a disobedient child and you kill them, you know, you don't. You know, no time out or or anything. You just kill them. But anyway, that with homosexuality, there it's very it's very clear and direct there uh, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy says that it's a uh, an abomination to God. And then there are a few verses in the New Testament that talk about it, sort of more or less indirectly. You know about uh, about homosexuality. You can do that. And then there, there's the thing going on there with Sodom and Gomorrah, where it's <laughs> that's that's a bizarre story. One of the things I would want people to know about would be the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, because that's just crazy, you know. I mean, the idea that Lot is a is the only person, and in, in Lot and his daughters are the only persons that that were uh, uh, worthy of being of surviving, and everyone else was was killed. Is is, is pretty crazy because. As soon as Lot gets out, he gets drunk and has sex with his daughters and, and impregnates them. That's all we know about Lot. Is that well? No, the other thing we know about Lot is that when the, but he had angels over visiting, the angels that were going to destroy the the town. He, they were visiting at his place there, and everybody in town, at least all the men in town, came to the door and said, "I want to have sex with those angels." He says, no, you can't have sex with my angels. Cause, you know, they're my guests, but here, I've got two virgin daughters. You can do whatever the heck you want with them. So he was getting ready to kick them out for the people, to the angel rapers, to do whatever they wanted with his daughters. And then the angel tells him to get out of town because he's going to destroy everybody. They're going to destroy everybody. And so they do that. And then they leave, and the wife looks back, you know, and she's turning the pillar of salt. And they go on and go to this cave. Then the daughters are worried. Well, there's no other guys around. So we we got to get our dad drunk and have sex with him. So then, what first night 
the older daughter does it, and the next night the younger one does, and they both get pregnant. And that's the end of Lot, the story of Lot, except for when you get to Second Peter in the New Testament where it talks about how Lot is a just and righteous man. No, that uh, that seems reasonable to me. Well, you got to think about that town. If, if the most reasonable and just man in town is sleeping with his daughters, how bad must that town have been? I suppose so, yeah. <laughs> about the worst thing I could do as a father would be to, to, to give it to a sex-crazed mob of angel rapers, tell them you can do whatever you want with my, with my daughter. So another one I've always been interested because in, such a one of the 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 books that I feel like is is a lot of times neglected by people who who haven't and have read the Bible is, is things like Revelations, things for for the future. And I was wondering uh, what what your thoughts were on on that book and like really again like what would you want people to know about that particular book? That is the most embarrassing book in the Bible, or at least in the New Testament, and it's the one that people are not familiar with, except for when they're trying to predict the end of the world. You know, they they like to go to Revelation to try to decide if the world's going to end in May twenty first or whatever, but. The, the, the book itself presents such a negative view of Jesus. I mean, Jesus is, is a major character of the book of Revelation, and he's a monster. And he's got a sword sticking out of his mouth, and he's going to kill people, and he's going to tread, uh, he's gonna tread uh, the grapes of wrath until the blood comes up to the bridles of the horses. I figured out how many people that would take, and it turns out, I forget, but it's in the trillions of people to get that much blood that, that they talk about Jesus in Revelation. Uh, he, le- he leads armies of people that are that are just destroying everybody. And he, he's just a real, his eyes are fiery red, his hair is white, he's got a sword sticking out of his mouth, killing people. He's just not a nice guy in Revelation, because that, you know, it's really embarrassing. There's this new push now that I've heard of uh, called Red Letter Christians, the people who only are concerned with what Jesus did. And uh, I think they might be a little surprised to hear that. Right, right. But there's not too many verses that would be in red because he doesn't speak very often, you know, because you've got that sword in his mouth. So before we wrap up here, um, I want to know if you have any other, like, um, projects on the horizon. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to finally get this. I'm working on getting this thing together in book form. So I'm, I, I'm hoping by the end of the year I'll have the... Bible, actually, in, uh, where you could buy it as a regular book. I wonder if they would sell it right next to the you know, original <laughs> Bibles. King James Version, the yeah, uh, KJV, SAB. <laughs> I think it'll be of some use to people. And, and then I plan to do the same thing eventually with the, with the Bible and the, I mean, with the Book of Mormon and the Quran uh, as well. So those are something. And I'd like to get it also um, available on... Um, you know, an iPhone, like, is an application or something like that, too. What about, have you, <clears throat> excuse me, have you ever taken a look at any of the non-canonized books, things like the Gnostic Gospels, uh, things along those lines? Or have you ever, I mean, just, has that ever uh, appealed to you? Well, I, I haven't got into that a lot. You know, I've read a lot of uh, Bart Ehrman's uh, stuff, and I enjoy reading about it, but I haven't, I haven't focused on it because, uh-huh. um, most most Christians don't. It's not a it's not a big issue to them. For some reason, they 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 have a lot of confidence that what they've got in the Bible is is the only the only are the only books that God intends to be in the Bible, and so they don't care about any of the others. A bunch of white guys in Rome got together and jammed them in the Bible. How could that be a flawed system? I I don't know. 
It certainly didn't change over time either. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, God is, you know, God was involved and was directing that whole process. You know, and the Holy Spirit wouldn't let them screw up. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> obviously. <laughs> oh, one thing I did I wanted to mention is that in terms of the the Bible, there are two good books in the Bible, and that is uh, one very good book, and that's Ecclesiastes. And another one that I think on the whole is good, and that's Proverbs. What makes that? Is it just the just sort of as a, as random wisdom, or what? What is your what makes that worthwhile? Well, to you? Uh, both of them, uh, especially Ecclesiastes, is just it's not it's not very religious in in nature. It's just sort of giving a philosophy about about man, and so they're sort of books of wisdom, I guess, and uh, where um, like Proverbs are just what it says, you know, Proverbs just kind of yeah. cute little uh, sayings that uh, are um, are interesting and oftentimes, you know, they do seem like fairly fairly wise uh, sayings, sometimes a little bit trivial, but Ecclesiastes is a lot deeper, I think, where it's talking about the the nature of evil and the struggles of, uh, of people to live good lives. And also the meaning of life, and of course, to the author of Ecclesiastes, he doesn't really think there is any. I mean, he he's very he's a very pessimistic fellow. That you know that we're all uh, basically, if you were to sum up sum up uh, Ecclesiastes, it would be you're all we're all dust in the wind. Interesting. I'm gonna have to go through and reread those too, and listen to Kansas. <laughs> Where, where can we find you? we got the skepticsannotatedbible.com. Oh, there's that, and then there's my blog, Dwindling in Unbelief. Awesome. Give us a uh, give us a plug for your book, too, Drunk with Blood, yeah, right? Drunk with Blood, yeah. The Dwindling with Unbelief is a, is a phrase that I took out of the Book of Mormon. It, it's a fairly common phrase, and I just used that. That was Steve Wells, everyone. What did you think of that, Jeff? <laughs> nah, Steve was awesome. Some of the cool things that I I was blown away by was where he talked about how minor of a Satan or character Satan is in the Bible. I thought that was a really interesting point he was making because there's a sort of duality that that a lot of Protestants push of like God versus Satan versus your immortal soul. That's, that's the struggle. Any movie you're going to see is, is that I, I get mm-hmm. most of my religious criticism from things like Constantine, of course. Yeah. But I just watched I the devil's it. advocate before coming over here. It was on the O network. Oxygen, straight. For, hey, which was strange. And no one, no one can push moral rules and intense intellectual criticism of thousand-year-old traditions like Keanu Reeves. Dude's <laughs> well, the, got range. Do you hear the, there's a Bill and Ted 3 coming out? Yes, oh my God. Oh, Bill and Ted 3. It's going to be them at 45 sitting on their oh, no. couch eating Cheetos, which was really what I thought the sequel to the initial Bill and Ted was going to be. I'm so excited about that. But it's it's like the the character of Satan.
Satan. Satan as a character is so much more fascinating than the than 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 a god character, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's it's you know that's why it's in so many movies is because it's so fascinating, you know. Well, and something I notice as I read it is it seems to me that God is kind of arbitrary and almost flat as a character. As you look at it, if you were to look at it from a literature perspective, Satan is it seems to be, have much more depth, much more interest to me about you know his complex emotions, his loyalty to God versus his his desire to have free will versus his jealousy for humanity. I I was really. I like that character. I'm very yeah, into Satan. Yeah. It's no, like we it, talked to Critter. <laughs> well, yeah. we, we should put that in in the, uh, the extra content if you download the app. That'll be, that'll be for this episode. Download the app. You'll get our interview with Critter. Critter, by the way, is a, is a homeless meth addict who talks to us about Satanism for a little while. So Yeah, I know. And he, he's really a big fan of Satan. And well, and I know that sounds ridiculous, <laughs> but Critter does really come from an interesting perspective. He, he, what, essentially, what we were doing is going out and talking to people about their specific religious faiths, and Critter grabbed the mic and wanted to go off, and he wasn't as insane as one might think when they give that description, right? He was, he was actually pretty reasonable in his account of what he felt. Yeah, it was weird. Like I, you, you look at the guy; he's got, he's covered in tats. He's got these wildly obnoxious kind of horns that are um, <laughs> yeah. tattooed across his head and um you know who knows what else that i didn't even you know uh see yeah and uh but he's he was you know and he was like missing half of his teeth um but he was i mean he it, it seemed like he had given this uh, some thought. It did seem like it took the time. As much time, I would say, as a lot of the Protestants I know. I know an awful lot of Protestants who will declare their faith without having read the Bible, without having looked into different aspects of religion. I know a lot of people who, who will literally tell you, I don't need to look at other religions. I know this one is true, which as an empiricist, I can't stand. Well, it makes perfect sense if you are brainwashed. <laughs> if you have drank the Kool-Aid and you're holding the assault rifle and you're waiting for Jim Jones to get off the plane, I'm, that's out of order, I think. But <laughs> No, anyways, yeah, yeah, it is. Once you're down the rabbit hole, it does make a lot of sense. No, this is truth. I shouldn't pollute my mind with non-truth. Yeah, exactly. I know it well. Yeah, I, I, but I had a lot of fun talking to Steve. I thought Steve was was an incredible guest, and I'd love to have him on again. What I would love to get is is maybe a more in depth discussion of a of a specific Bible text. That was great. Oh, yeah, certainly he was, no doubt, knowledgeable, and uh, like he was able to just bring up um, stories and and verses uh, uh, very easily. Yeah, obviously he's super comfortable with it. Well, and I like his story. He seems like someone who really just has put in the time because it meant something to him. You know, he hasn't... This isn't a publicity stunt for him. It's something that he really wanted to learn about, really wanted to know about, and he decided to share what his findings were. It isn't something where he just wanted to give a TED speech. <laughs> Sam Harris, I still love you. <laughs> Right, but no, he was. He, he seemed to be very, very genuinely interested in the topic, which I think you would have to. But a lot of, a lot of people I've dealt with seem to look at it very scholarly, 
and I think he was very, very interested in what was going on. If if that distinction even makes sense, right? I, I'm yeah. <laughs> cut that out, Seth. <laughs> well, it's interesting. It's it's so interesting to me that I had a very, very, very shallow, superficial understanding of the Bible when I was a Christian, mm-hmm. and then it wasn't until. Um, I became an atheist, and then I, I think this is true for a lot of atheists. That, yeah, that you kind of delve into it more, um, and you really explore the Bible. Um, n- you know, not just the, the shit they teach you in Sunday school. You know, like the yeah. the Noah's Ark and the Genesis and and uh, you know the crucifixion. I mean, you really you you start to look at the other pages and like well, what are the, what else does this say? And you kind of look at it with a with a critical lens. And uh, so that's it's the, the Bible is something that's become even more fascinating to me. Yeah. After my deconversion, I guess you would call it. Yeah, absolutely. It's that. Well, and, and I, I personally think that education, even on the Bible, even biblical education is the antithesis to to faith. It really does create problems with that. And when you look at it, <clears throat> who was it that said the Bible properly read? Um, is the greatest force for atheism ever conceived? Was <laughs> that like I, I know there's Isaac a great, Asimov or something? There's a great Ben Gillette has a version <laughs> of that where he's talking in bullshit and says something to the effect of, uh, "If you want to push atheism, make people read this book and hold <laughs> up the Bible because if you read this piece of shit cover to cover, and I'm paraphrasing, that might not be exactly how he said it, but it really is." Again, there's that Officer Barbrady moment. I read that piece of shit cover to cover, and I'm never reading again. And I know my first experience reading the Bible, I have read the Bible cover to cover. I'm very... Oh, wow. wow. I've done it. I I literally did it so I could tell off Christians. (laughs) No, I I actually did. I set up a schedule. small feat. No, and I was reading book by book by book by book. And you have no idea how much nonsense is in there that doesn't make linear story sense. If there was an editor, he would cut was, the I was fuck right. out it of that It is Isaac. Book. Damn, I'm good. <laughs> Our producer just came in with the quote. He does say it's Isaac Asimov. That was word for word, bitches. <laughs> Bring it, Seth. Bring it. <laughs> oh, but here's something I want to put at the beginning for any, any, any new listeners on iTunes that have found us because we're new and noteworthy in the science section. <laughs> um, and we're like, bam, right up there. You see leadership free thought. We, we have put some science in our previous podcast, and we're working on right now doing more scientifically-based episodes. Right. There's been a little bit of a focus on atheism slash, call it religious studies, but we obviously do have a, a very science-oriented lean. So we're talking to Caleb. You guys might recognize Caleb from doing our outro, asking for two and two. Caleb's going to talk to us a little about his favorite Bible verses. We're going to talk to a few of our favorite skeptics and get their opinions since we're doing Steve Wells this week. So what do you think? 
Okay, uh, well, my favorite Bible verse probably comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 22, verse 21. I think that's how the order goes. All and a right. uh, bit of context, uh, some followers of Jesus are asking him if he pays taxes, if they, are, if they are supposed to pay taxes as followers of Jesus. And what he says is, take out, take out a coin in your pocket and look, at, and look at the back. Whose face is that? Caesar's, they say. And Jesus then says, give unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and then give unto God that which is God's. Okay. So, pay your taxes, people. Jesus commanded. <laughs> Odd, considering how much he hated the moneylenders. The guy had weird economic principles. I don't want to pretend. That <laughs> yeah. All right. I mean, I, I want to I make this perfectly clear. This is coming from a website called Jesus Was a Liberal. So... Uh, <laughs> Our conservative see, listeners are yeah. going to fucking hate us for this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see. Where is that? Okay. P- on Jesus on public, pra- public prayer and displays of faith. This is Matthew chapter 6, verse 6 and 7. Um, and, when the, and when thou pray, Jesus says, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of streets, that they may be seen by men. Verily I say unto you, they, ha- they have their reward. But thou, when thou pray, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to the Father, which is in secret. Right, so a uh, uh, keep-it-to-yourself mentality. Yes. Uh, in our town, there's this street where people gather on one side or the other, and it's always split liberal versus conservative. It, couldn't, it could be anything. It could be the war in Iraq. It could be the war in Afghanistan. It could be Osama bin Laden recently died. I'm sure there's going to be something about how the CIA is covering that up, which they are. Let's not pretend they aren't. Well, one of the things I've always heard about Jesus being a liberal, and uh, I don't know 100% how accurate this is, is that there's, there's somewhere, depending on who you ask, between four and maybe up to 15 or 20 Bible verses on homosexuality. And they all have, not all of them condemn it, but they all have a, a negative view of it, is what we're going to call it here. But there's something like 2,000 verses in which he talks about feeding the poor. Meanwhile, every church in the country focuses on the fact that everybody is gay and they don't send a lot of cash their way. I don't know if you've ever seen the Crystal Cathedral down in Los Angeles or down in San Diego. That thing is fucking ridiculous. I, you, I don't think I've seen a building that more and, money was and you, spent on. And you on. know there had to be, had to have been at least one gay interior decorator in there somewhere. <laughs> I mean, I mean, let's be honest. Hey, the gays aren't gaudy. That thing is that thing is uh, is what that's you know, 150,000 square feet of glass. No gay guy came up with that. <laughs> no, the uh but yeah, it's one of those things that blows my mind. I feel like you shouldn't be able to build a building until you found a, a situation where all of your clergy have been handled, you know. There there are people without right now we've got a Catholic church in town. Gorgeous building. Yet, I'm sure a large part of their congregation can't afford things like health insurance and basic foods. And if you think about, you know, Jesus may have been somewhat of a socialist if you look at the situation. I actually think he was because I think he uh, he also advocated giving to the poor and inviting them to inviting them to your feast because they can't repay because specifically because they can't repay you because you get more of a reward for that. Because you are being kind and spreading your wealth among those people that can't pay you back. Well, anyone who's listened before knows that I do my part by inviting whores into my home on a regular basis. I, I do nothing if not care for the downtrodden. So, well, if you, if it's, um, my brother's actually done some research on this. He's a high schooler right now. He's graduating in May, or you know, later, later in this month actually. And um, one of the things he sort of found interesting was that a lot of what 
Jesus talked about was actually stuff that Buddha had brought up in his teachings. And he sort of, and he's, and my, something he, a conclusion he came to, uh, my brother did on uh, this point was that there has been sort of an evolution of religious ideals with sort of the, you know, treat, you know, treat thy neighbor as yourself mentality sort of being the core of it. And there's a lot of different people that espouse this. And I think it's find it kind of interesting that nobody, nobody remembers that about Jesus nowadays, or the, or at least they say they do, but they act differently. Right. Did you see there was a, there was a push a few years ago from some, I don't know if they were Catholic groups, but essentially to saint a Buddha surrogate, essentially saying that Buddha's teachings fit into Christianity, which I don't know how that would be. It's well, not the same. I, I find that kind of condescending because wasn't Buddha around a lot longer than Jesus? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. The, uh, I, God, there was this one fucking time. Holy shit. <laughs> So I'm at this church, and these people are going off about something Jesus said, something Jesus said, something Jesus said. And I'm, I'm way more comfortable with Buddha's teachings, as, as nonsensical as that is, because I'm not really comfortable with those. But specifically, one of the things that I was talking about, as I said, um, in the story of the Buddha, and I was cut off right there. And one of the people said something along the lines of, which story? I said, the, the story of the Buddha at one point. There's this, and no, no, which story? There are all sorts of stories of the Buddha. It's all over the map. I went, there are all sorts of fucking books talking about Jesus, and yet you guys call it the story of Jesus. I think I'm entitled at least to that point to discuss the story of Buddha, the story of Latsu, the story of whoever you want to go with there. And it's, it, it really is a little bit absurd that they want to take the monopoly on, but this guy was real. Buddha was not. And it's... And I have no idea who was real and who wasn't. My sense is that both were probably real in their own way. Well, I, 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 think, well, I mean, I, I think that they, I think that they are both real. I just think that you know they both been you know elevated to a godlike position, so mm-hmm. to speak. I mean, I mean, uh, I mean, I, I mean, whenever people tell me that I deny the existence of Jesus, I tell them I, I, I don't. I mm-hmm. think he was a real person. I just deny that he was the Son of God. Well, and Christopher Hitchens has this amazing argument for why Jesus was probably real. And he talks about things like the birth, how they invoke Herod, who probably wasn't alive at the same time that any of this went on, to move the baby from place to place so that he could be from the kingdom of David. And then they talk about three women finding him after the resurrection, and women would have been in no way respected in that culture. So if you just were making up a story and wanted to fit a bunch of things that came out of the Old Testament, the rabbinical text, you wouldn't do it that way, right? You would have someone who was born in the place he was supposed to be born. You would have someone who was found by men, people who could testify appropriately, who were respected in that particular culture. That's the way you would do it, right? So all the things that are like, uh, we're kind of going to wedge Jesus in here. It's, it's a trapezoid in a square hole, but we're going to make it happen. Somebody get me my hammer. That's, that's one of the greatest indications that Jesus probably was real, is, is how hard they've worked to make it fit. Biblical prophecy? <laughs> it's supposed to fit. Whatever. The, or, or, just, or, just in this, or just in his own story. I mean, you know... I mean, you want this story to be real, so you try to shoehorn in anything you can that makes it seem real. Well, and there's that Egyptian sort of idea. I believe it's Osiris. I'm not 100% sure which god it is. And if you go online, this is going to get oversold to you. It's not the exact same story, but there were a lot of gods at the time. 
who were using a lot of the elements of the Christ mythology. They were using resurrection. They were using things like a virgin birth. They were using things like control over demons. They were using things like a water-based self-baptism or a water-based baptism by someone else. They, it's, it's just really, again, baptism being loosely translated, a loose idea from, from Egyptian lore. But it is one of those things where, where you do find a lot of these things moving back through other 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 sources we got off on a massive tangent <laughs> so you can cut whatever you want out of that all right all right so we got a good cut from you you want to do it hans sure all right so we were here with hans hans is one of our regulars at skeptics in the pub and hans going to tell us one of his favorite bible verses and favorite can mean whatever it wants to mean <laughs> yeah my uh favorite uh bible verse comes from uh Genesis uh, chapter 5, verses uh, 3 through 5. And it's just the way that they even phrase this whole story here. Let me just go ahead and read this here. It says, And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness and after his image, and he called his name Seth. And the days of Adam after he... <laughs> not that Seth. <laughs> and, then they, and then the days of Adam after he had begotten Seth were 800 years, and he begat sons and daughters. And then here's where it gets really fun. And all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. So basically what they're saying here is Adam's 130 years old, has a son named Seth, lives for another 800 years, and then they go back and say, yes, that's right, we're going to do the math for you. He was 930 years old because either, A, we don't trust you to be able to do the math for yourself, or we really mean, like, yeah, you read that correctly, 930 years. What's kind of cool about that is you're sitting there and you're thinking, yeah, that's absurd. The guy is fathering children at 130 years old. Meanwhile, the biblical scholar Hugh Hefner has been doing intense studies on what it is like to father children into your 80s, 90s, uh, into your centennial year. And, uh, and I don't think his work can go understated as something important within the Bible. We, we all have to realize that was before the waters broke from heaven, and uh, isn't that the, the biblical, <laughs> nonsensical understanding of why they were living so long? See, actually, at first, no, I kind of gave that a pass. I'm like, okay, he'll be 130 years old. They didn't really say how long they were in the Garden of Eden, so, and they were immortal then, so fine. But then when we get to the whole rest of this list of ye who begat so-and-so at you know such crazy ages, that's where things just kind of like, oh, this is not real. We have finally get to Noah, who's, what, 500 years old when he builds the ark? It's, it's absolutely absurd. It's one of those things. Why would we have this book passed down from place to place in jars on vellum from 2,000 years ago, yet we have never seen one live to this age? And when we start taking proper record keeping into account, it just doesn't happen. You know, as soon as the Greeks and the Romans show up and start rocking numbers, it just doesn't go down that way. All right, so a friend of ours, Brian's got a quote he wants us to talk about a little bit. He's a bit gun-shy about, about the mic, which is totally understandable. He's not a gigantic loudmouth like me. It's a skill I've cultivated over the years through alcohol and a misapprehension of my own, uh, my own talents. But we're gonna have we're gonna have Caleb talk a little bit about it. So Caleb, tell us what the quote is. Okay, this is uh, the Book of Samuel, verse eighteen, or chapter eighteen, verses twenty-five through twenty-eight. And Saul said, 
Thus shall ye say to David, The king desireth not any dowry, but a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, to be avenged of the king's enemies. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law, and the days were not expired. Wherefore David arose and went, he and his men, and slew of the Philistines two hundred men, and David brought their foreskins, and then gave them in full tale to the king, that he might be the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave unto him Michael his daughter to wife. And Saul saw and knew that the Lord was, was with David, and that Michael's Michael Saul's daughter loved him. What I love about this particular verse is that uh, it's essentially a scalping foreskin type ritual. It's it's, uh, <laughs> it's let's cut him off and send him home, which is I, fucking awesome. I, I'm, no, I'm no biblical scholar, but I would hazard a guess that this is coming from the Old Testament at some point because I'm pretty sure Jesus did not talk about carving off a man's foreskin and bringing that to your to your father-in-law as a dowry. Well, and something that something that Seth and I will probably talk about is the absurdities that Jesus has brought up. But, yeah, I don't think there was the cock extrication type of moment in the Bible. There was not, Michael, send onto them the fishes and also bring me back the cocks of the eldest born males. There was there was very little cock in the in the in the later testament. I mean, I'm I'm suddenly reminded of the Richard Dawkins quote that the God of the Bible was without a doubt the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. All right, so something we're getting from yet another person of skeptical of the pub who's not completely comfortable talking on Amy. <laughs> over the mic. Yeah, it's Amy and Brian. I I'd like all emails to be sent to me and I'll forward them to her at at way to fucking put then Amy's probably gonna have to forward them to me it's you know the website the website is I don't care dot Caleb dot blogspot dot com all right so we're gonna move on to the King wait, James Bible wait, which wait. I'm sure had a, a happy friend time uh, sort of veggie tales perspective on it and it said happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones so we're trying to look for the context of this and it's fucking deep. I don't really understand what it is they're trying to say here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pass the mic around the table, and we're all going to guess at a context that makes Happy be the one who bashes the babies against the rocks. We're going to try and find a context that makes that okay. okay. So let's toss that around. I'm going with my answer initially as zombie apocalypse. These are zombie babies. You bash them against the rock, and then you, in a sort of walking dead style mode, leave Atlanta. All right, so let's toss it over to Caleb. What do you think the context is that would make that okay? Well, uh, my my answer is probably not all that far off from yours. I'm going to go with the pseudo-vampire Twilight version where there's there has been a great spree of vampires, sparkly vampires, moving throughout the village. No, this is and the, that they must get rid of the vampire babies that are spawned thereof. So. No, this is the version where you're taking out babies that have incredible abs. That's really what you're looking for in a vampire baby is the six pack. It, it, or actually four pack. It's, it's a small one on I mean, the babies. I, 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 I think I do. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's great. And you get a two for one because not only you're bashing vampire babies, but you're bashing potential homosexuals. If you don't believe me, I want you all to watch True Blood and I want you to rock some Twilight. Let's hand it to Hans and see what his interpretation of the potential reasons that bashing the babies against the rock could be okay. Well, have you ever, like, you know, killed a baby? It's fun. They don't put up a fight or anything, and 
have no idea. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's as easy as taking candy from a baby. That's boring. You know, you just dash their head against the rock. It's fun. It's easy. They didn't have TV back then. They needed something to do. And let's pass it over to Amy and see what Amy thinks. I don't have enough imagination. My theory on context, knowing almost nothing about the Bible, is that these guys are repeating something that their enemies said when they were destroying their city. So, like, there's these people who are somewhere who, not at home, and they're be, being told to sing pretty songs, and they're all upset because their home just got destroyed, and they're remembering what the evil people did who kicked them out of their homes sang while they were destroying wherever these people are from. So now I want everyone to look around the room, and I want you to feel and think about the joy that has been killed by Amy's deadpan delivery of just fucking nonsense. I, I want you all to feel the weight that is that lack of humor and spontaneity and fun that she has brought to the table. So let's, let's pass it over to my co-host and see what he thinks the appropriate context would be for smashing babies on a rock. Now, Seth, I want to throw this idea by you. Is this the first explicit example of abortion being accepted in the Bible? Now, people are always arguing over second trimester, third trimester abortion. What I'm assuming is that this is ninth through 15th trimester abortions, which are undoubtedly endorsed by God. I told you before, I have no, almost no knowledge of the Bible. But um, This is Seth, if, who grew up in a very Christian <laughs> home in Texas, with almost no knowledge of the Bible. I think that's as telling as anything he could possibly say. They don't, they don't want you to know much about the Bible. Well, but um, if I were to guess... They would, let's see, context for smashing infants. I want to hear the context that makes that okay. That's what I want to hear. That they somehow knew that in the future these would become antichrist adults. Oh. Or if they were spawns of Satan, even though we've, in our discussion with Steve Wells, we've determined that Satan really wasn't that bad of a guy. Not bad. There are no infants <laughs> bashed Wells to death and by Critter. Satan in the Bible. I'm comfortable taking that stand. He wasn't a very hands-on guy, though. Who knows? That's, that's the only thing I can think of, is if they had some sort of precognition that these, chil that these infants would grow up to be just massive, massive psychopaths that, like, wreak some serious heinous, catastrophic events on humanity. Well, all joking aside, something you and I have talked about is the idea that, that a fair amount of... I'm going to go beyond the word fundamentalist, just, just psychotic, delusional, schizophrenic, over-the-top believers will essentially roll militant. That uh, might be a good word. Brian's tossing out at me. And... You know what the mic, Brian? One of the things about that the is that they'll pull the, if they were innocent and I killed them, that was okay because now they're in heaven. If they weren't innocent and I killed them, that was okay because they deserved it. And really, one could make that argument for bashing babies against the rocks if you were to believe that particular, if you were to adopt that, that paradigm. The babies were innocent. You're sending them to heaven to be with God. That's the best thing you could possibly do. And certainly been used throughout the years. I mean, uh, 
Salem witch trials. William Lane Craig just recently um, posted something about that on reasonable faith. Well, the truth is that no one expects the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> and the thing about that is that, that there really is that if you were to follow the Bible to its logical outcomes, there is something about death that has no meaning. Yeah. There is no end. There is no point at which, hey, I probably should have got some shit done by now. Sam Harris, uh, remember, he's, he's, he talks about the sting of death mm-hmm. and how religious, devoutly religious people don't have that sting. Um, because if, if, you're, if you're a believer and you die, uh, you know, no harm, no foul. Yeah. And if you're uh, evil or a non-believer and you die, you're going to hell, so fuck you, and you're taken out of the, out of the uh, equation. Well, it's the same thing as Doctor Who during the last few seasons. When you talk about it, you look at it, <laughs> and you say, hey... He can just regenerate. So you have to have David Tennant complain about how dying feels like dying. You lose your whole persona, and it's important. That's the only way you truly experience death. And what I'm understanding you saying <laughs> is that Christians are a lot like Doctor Who, except for with the technology, without the technology, the internationality, and the liberal bent. Essentially everything that makes me watch the show. I've n- never seen one episode of Doctor Who, but I'm going to trust your judgment on the analogy. Now, what I want to say to you is that you, <laughs> sir, are worse than Hitler. <laughs> no, yeah, for those of you who don't know, I'm an intense fan of Doctor Who. We're looking forward to, we're looking forward to episode three of season six tonight of the new incarnation, Eccleston, Tennant, to Smith, which is essentially my holy, holy trinity, <laughs> in my understanding. This has been the Leaders in Free Thought podcast with Seth and Jeff. As Leaders in Free Thought is a free podcast, all they're asking for in return is a fuck off. God damn it. <laughs> Seth, please, please, please don't use this. Okay, take three. This has been the Leaders in Free Thought podcast with Seth and Jeff. As Leaders in Free Thought is a free podcast. <laughs> this has been the Leaders in Free Thought podcast with Seth and Jeff. As Leaders in Free Thought is a free podcast, all they ask for is a two and two. Take two minutes and leave a comment in iTunes or tell two of your friends.